Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work through the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. Joining us on this episode from Bucharest, Romania is Magda Mew, who is a technical trainer, speaker, and blogger. Magda is currently a squad lead developer for Orange and is a co-organizer of Women Techmakers Romania and a number of other local groups. Magda Miu, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Ravi. I'm happy also to be here. Excellent. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software? Yeah, I think it's usually it means that you trust your code, you trust the, your software, and this trust is built in time. It involves a lot of things. It's a team effort, and it means to have clean code, uh, a readable code. It means to make sure you have a clear separation of concerns, high cohesion and loose coupling, and also you should make sure that the oriented object principles are applied, like solid or dry or KISS or YAGMI. Um, for sure, tests are very important, and they should run. Uh, they should be run periodically, and they should be maintained. Security checks to make sure that uh, your cl- clients, your users, are using a safe software. Uh, also, the unhappy paths should be covered, and everything should be put in place and have a CI/CD pipeline that will help you to make uh, easier the releases. You know, out of curiosity, what types of projects are you usually working on in terms of, are you like mobile development applications or web apps, a bit of everything? Yeah, my background is in mobile development, especially Android development. I used to do only mobile apps uh, at the beginning. I worked as an Android developer for about six years. After that, I uh, started also to have a few colleagues in my team, and I started to be like a mentor for them because I was the most, most senior uh, person in the, in the team. After that, I started to uh, be like a team lead for them. And currently, uh, I have a cross-functional team. Uh, I have also back-end developers and mobile developers. We are an entire squad. And right now we are developing uh, two mobile apps, an Android and an iOS native uh, apps that are exposed to the end customers. But uh, uh, my team also uh, is creating the backend of uh, these apps. And also we handle everything from uh, UX, UI designs, prototypes. Uh, the specs are also written inside of the team. I mean, uh, all the members of the team are involved in the entire life cycle of the project, from defining the specs until the project is uh, launched on the market and we have marketing campaigns and so on. Oh, wow. Nice. You know, one of the things you said earlier about maintainable code being having trust in your code and you, a lot of the things you mentioned kind of helps uh, answer to what that with ways to do that like you mentioned like having tests run on a regular frequency or you mentioned some um, some various things like solid or yagni for those that aren't familiar what is can you give a quick intro to that what solid is and yagni yes solid it's actually a set of principles this this set of principles are related to the way we structure our code and the main idea is to have 
loose coupling and high cohesion. Cohesion means that each model or class will have only one responsibility and it's somehow related to the first principle from SOLID, which is single responsibility principle. S is coming from single responsibility principle. And it means that a class or a model should have only one responsibility and only one reason to change. Other than that, uh, the second one is uh, open-closed principle, and uh, we need to make sure that when we write our code, uh, we will be able to uh, add extra features without changing the existing code and affecting the current behavior. L is coming from Liskov substitution principle. Uh, uh, Liskov was actually a woman, was Barbara Liskov. And uh, it means that you need to, your behavior should uh, not be changed even if you use the, the child and not the parent and so on. So it, it's actually about how you structure the code. It's about uh, using the encapsulation and making sure that you don't let other classes or models to know uh, so much about your class. And it's also about polymorphism and make sure that you, you respect this, uh, these principles. And the result is that your code will be easy to maintain and easy to add new features inside of it. But you're coming from an OO world primarily, correct? Yes, yes, exactly. You know, one of the things that I always find interesting when you talk about, you know, having classes that are, as you say, kind of like a single responsibility. Can you give like a tangible example for folks that might not be maybe like maybe newer in their career and haven't really had a chance to like they're maybe working on existing projects that have a lot of code already written, but like maybe what's, what's a good what's a good example that you might be able to help kind of frame that around? Yeah, for example, in in the Android world, but also in any other project that expose a, a user interface to the user, uh, it's okay that uh, your view to have uh, very few code and to not have the logic, the business inside of it. So the view should be responsible only to display the UI elements and that's it. And after that, you need to have, for example, in the Android world, we have architecture components and we have the view model. The view model is the component that will um, communicate with the business, with the uh, maybe with a web server uh, or maybe with a local data database and the view model will process the data and uh, th that data will be displayed in the UI. So in this case, the single responsibility of the UI, of the view, is to just to display the UI. And the view model will make sure that the info that is obtained from the database or from the API, it's uh, displayed correctly and respects the business rules. Nice. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all? Yeah. <laughs> right now I'm in a, a very lucky context and we start the project from the beginning, from the scratch. Usually it happens that you get also some technical debt. And currently our approach is to identify that debt. It's like you, when you have a financial debt, you need to know how big is that debt. In order to uh, evaluate these things, the team should focus to see what are the things that should be improved. And we have like a backlog. We try to create a list of stories or tasks with those things that should be improved. We estimate them. And based on the impact and the priority, we take a few part of them in each sprint in order to also reduce the technical debt and also to deliver some real value to the users. In in your current working environment, 
Is that something that your team's able to kind of manage themselves or are you having to take those conversations like, hey, we have the we we have identified some technical debt. It's in our backlog. We have an estimate. Are you needing to go present that to some other stakeholders that are thinking about other aspects and priorities in the business, or is that something that team can feels pretty comfortable that they can just include each time and they're not needing to ask for like having to sell the benefit to say non technical people. Yeah, in the current context, yes, I think we have a lucky approach. Uh, our product owners uh, understand the importance uh, of uh, writing a clean or code that it's maintainable, and uh, for sure they want to us to also to deliver value to the user. But I think it's more like a negotiation, and we split it the uh, effort in the sprint uh, based on the priorities. And we also try to combine our priorities with their priorities. And for example, if we have a release in two weeks, for sure we will focus to uh, make that release uh, a success. And after that, focus on the technical debt. But uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a continued conversation, and it's important to understand and to help the stakeholders to understand the why, and also to to have a clear plan. Because if you have a clear plan and you let them know this is the list, these are our priorities. When they see that you have a plan, they will trust you and they will understand the, the importance uh, of uh, achieving the pl- that plan. Have you seen some examples of how software engineers try to present technical debt in a very ineffective way? I had some, we had some challenges in this area, maybe because we were not so seniors and maybe because we didn't know how to help the non-technical people to understand why we want to address that technical debt and actually what is this technical debt because they need to understand also uh, how uh, this technical debt appeared. And usually it happens because we have uh, uh, deadlines or maybe the team is, on, uh, the team is uh, made of uh, junior people. Uh, and there are a lot of causes of this, uh, this issue. Yeah, in the past, it was uh, challenging to, to explain these things, but it's a thing that you learn. <laughs> it could be improved all the time. What are some challenges that you've faced as a developer when encountering older existing code bases? I think the common challenge is uh, the absence of the tests. Because uh, if uh, you get a project with a legacy code and you want to refactor it, uh, it's very difficult to refactor because you don't know if you change something, uh, if something will will be broke uh, in some part of the apps. So uh, this is the common issue, the, mis- the absence of the tests. You know, and that speaks, I think, to your earlier point on having trust in the code. And it's like, in some ways, having trust in your own self to make changes in something that you don't fully understand. And so it's, a, it's an anxiety or just a high fear of risk or I don't want to break things, but also needing to somehow figure out how do you push through that. So... In those scenarios, do you feel like you have some good examples of where you've been able to actually start implementing some tests to build up that confidence? And how do you and what types of tests do you think are most valuable early on to introduce to, say, a legacy code base? Yeah, the, I think this one is the first solution that it comes to, to start to write tests and after that start to refactor the code. Uh, unit tests for the beginning. 
it's also helpful to have at least some documentation or at least the product owner that defined those specs at the beginning to make sure that you know what you are doing there. And it's also important to understand that this, uh, this review of the code, it involves a lot of time because you spend most of the time by reading the code. And uh, maybe you read, I don't know, two or three hours uh, the code and debug it in order to understand what is the logic of it and what is the uh, connection between the models or the classes. And after that, you maybe write just three or three, <laughs> three or four lines of code in order to, I don't know, fix a thing or uh, just to understand what's happening in order to implement your feature. You know, you, you touched on reading code versus writing code, and I think... Um, it's something that I'm hearing more about people trying to spend more time, or at least talk about that aspect of software development that it's, it's, we're spending more time reading than writing probably, but that's not like the image that we project of like what a developer or engineer is doing is like, oh, I'm working on just writing a bunch of code and Matt, and it's like, but there's so much time just compre comprehending what's already there. How do you coach people on your team to understand how to get effective at reading and understanding code versus just jumping into to start changing code. Yeah, I think it's also a, a term uh, uh, from Martin Fowler, comprehension refactoring, to understand the code and as you start to understand it, to also uh, be able to refactor it. And yes, uh, I think the in my coaching process with my team, the most important thing is to help them to understand the why, uh, why it's important to, to change it or to refactoring uh, that code or to add tests, and also to help them to learn how to ask questions, how to address questions. Because uh, when you start to work on a feature or to solve an issue, you need to make sure that you understand what should be done. And in order to understand it, you need to address questions. So I think this is an important skill that should be developed to, to be curious, to ask questions and to understand also the importance of the code review and the pull requests. Because uh, even if you, you are not so sure about what's happening there, uh, okay, you address the questions. It's like a process, actually. You address the question to understand what's happening there. You start to read the code, start to write the code, and after that, you send the pull request to your colleagues. And this is a way to, very good way to get some feedback from them and also uh, to help them to learn the code base and understand also uh, that part of the project and also improve the quality and the consistency of the code. Because uh, I think when you, when you are new in a team or when you build a team from the, from the scratch, it's important to uh, define a set of conventions with them and make sure that everybody is aware about those set, that set of conventions and they are applied in our daily uh, tasks. I understand also the importance of uh, sharing the knowledge and understand uh, the code base. I think I, I think I know how you might answer this, but the, in terms of asking questions of your peers and the stakeholders of like what the requirements are, but are, do you also kind of advocate for trying to think about how they're asking questions of themselves as they're looking at the code in terms of like, how does this work or why would someone write it, you know, like trying to connect the pieces to get that mental model of the, of how the application's currently working? 
Yeah, indeed, it's it's uh, somehow uh, split it into two directions: external question and internal questions. And uh, when you ask your stakeholders, or maybe your manager, or your colleagues, uh, an important thing here is to have a, a common language. And when you ask, I don't know, what does it mean cancel for you? You should have the same meaning for that word. And everybody should know that cancel means that, I don't know, a user uh, doesn't want to continue with that subscription, sorry. Other than addressing the questions outside uh, of the team or to the stakeholders or to your manager, for sure it's also an internal process. And from my experience, usually I prefer to take a piece of paper and just to try to uh, make like a pseudo-code and like a mental model or schema in order to understand how the things are going inside of the code and understand the connections and the relationships between the between the classes or the models. You know, admittedly, I've not had a lot of guests on the podcast that work in the mobile app world. And so I, wanted, I was curious, do you find that there's some particularly unique challenges to building maintainable code for those types of projects, say, versus someone that's building maybe a desktop or maybe my world is like more web development and APIs and such. What are some unique set of challenges that you're in in, in your facet of the industry? Do you feel like you're you're experiencing on a regular basis? Uh, So I work as a web developer for about uh, uh, half a year, I think five or six months, C Sharp. And uh, after that, I started to, to work on the Android development because uh, in the, at the university, I learned Java. And this was the, the main uh, criteria uh, used by my managers to, to follow this, uh, this switch. And yes, indeed, uh, it, I like it more. Uh, the to code uh, in the Android uh, for the uh, in order to build Android apps because I had opportunity to show how my code is creating an app. So I write some code in a tool and that code it's packaged and after that I'm able to see it on the device. And this was the main thing that made me to continue uh, this uh, this career my career in the Android development. Uh, in terms of challenges, yes, uh, there are a lot of challenges, uh, especially about related to the fragmentation, uh, because uh, especially on Android and lately also in, uh, in the iOS development, we have a lot of devices, small devices, bigger devices with different Android versions. And the platform is very fragmented and your coach should be done uh, in order to work on different kinds of devices. Uh, There are entry-level devices, uh, mid-range devices, and premium devices. And you need to make sure that you have resources adapted for each type uh, that that you handle correctly the memory, because maybe your app will run on a device that doesn't have so much memory. And I think this is the uh, the main challenge. And also the fact that each year, something new is launched. (laughs) And in the Android world, uh, I'm happy that in the latest, uh, I think, three years, uh, Google started to bring uh, some guidelines for us, the developers, in terms of uh, developing apps. Until uh, uh, 2017, uh, the community brought some 
architecture models or libraries that should be used uh, in order to implement, I don't know, uh, the connection to, uh, to a local database or the way to handle the architecture of an app. And right now, from my point of view, it's a good uh, start uh, if you want to chase this career in the Android development. It's a good, it's a good moment to start to, to learn Android. You're saying that there's a, over the last few years, there's been a, an investment in, and a little bit more best practices have been kind of shared more collectively around the industry, or at least in that space of software development. I know that's always, a, that's always been a challenge for me with different types of, I, mean, I work in the web application environment. So I work with like, say, Ruby on Rails primarily for a really long time. And one of the things I always really liked about it was very opinionated to be like, if you follow most of these best practices, you're going to be able to do 80, 90% of what you really need to do. And you can figure out those, you know, those little edge cases along the way. But that's always been really that's made my life as a as a consultant and a software developer to be able to take over existing projects because most projects hopefully follow in a little bit of those you know embrace those conventions and I I'm always curious about another ecosystems where like that could be a challenge like well the previous people that worked on this project had one set of opinions and now it's like a completely different set of opinions on this other project and like okay so you just try like how do you approach them all try to build some um, momentum on those different opinions, I suppose. The one thing I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned um, how you're going through your, with your team on, you're, you select some stories, maybe every sprint that are dealing with some technical debt. Is there an approximate percentage on average you're seeing is like 20% of the work that you're committing to is on improving existing stuff versus building new stuff? Yeah, to be honest, in the current context, we just started to build a backlog. <laughs> so we are still uh, assessing the stories and try to get some extra details from the stakeholders in order to make sure that we will develop it in, uh, in the right direction. But uh, I tend to say that it will be around 10, 15%, maybe 20, depending on the priorities from the product owners. I'll check in with you again in, some, in the future and see how that's, that's going for you. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, outside of writing and maintainable and clean code and following all these principles, what other characteristics are you looking for in your team members at, to work collectively in a team? Yeah, uh, I when I started to work as a team lead, uh, and currently I'm a squad lead developer, uh, I understood the importance uh, of the team in order to create an awesome product. I truly believe that if you build an awesome team, that team will build some awesome products. If you are lucky enough to choose your team members, you should start from the hiring process and make sure that you know what kind of profiles are you searching for and have a, a hiring process in place with some clear milestones that should be achieved by each candidate. And after that, I think it's also important to have a, an onboarding process because the onboarding uh, time, it's actually the uh, represent the first days of a new uh, team member inside of that project, inside of that company. And you should do your best in order to make them feel comfortable and welcomed. And I think also the onboarding should start before the team member will join the team. It's important to call them before they will uh, um, come at work uh, and let them know they are important for you and for your uh, team and for the project. And 
they are welcomed in the team. And also when they uh, start the, to work, you should have some checklists that should be covered in order to make sure that they know what should be done. Uh, they know what tools to install or what uh, uh, software uh, are you using in order, I don't know, to make a request for a mouse or for a keypad. Uh, and also it's very helpful to have uh, an onboarding body. Someone from the team that already knows all the processes and what's happening in the company that will help the new team member to have a smooth onboarding. Uh, this is when uh, it's applied when you hire new team members. If you already uh, have a, a team, I a thing that I understood lately uh, in the latest years is that it's about them. It's not about me. My role is to set up them for success. And I need to create a context uh, in order to help them to grow and to make sure that uh, everything or at least almost of the things are clear. We have a set, uh, clear set of object objectives. And uh, also the trust is very important. It's very difficult to build. And the honesty. Yeah, sometime, sometimes we prefer to be nice uh, because in this way you avoid the difficult conversations. But by having this approach, your team will not be able to grow and you could get some extra issues <laughs> uh, starting from there. And I'm still learning. Uh, I'm still doing my best to, to have a uh, rigorous and uh, consistent behavior. I can appreciate that. Um, as you were talking about that, I'm like, oh, we, we're doing some of those things. And I'm like, I'm doing a really bad job at a few of those too. And I'm like, oh, I need to think about that a little bit more. I wanted to dig into this a little bit more. Um, you mentioned the squad lead. What, what is... I've heard that mentioned a few times, and there's been a couple of other guests that have mentioned it. But just for those that weren't, that didn't hear that episode, what is what is a squad lead versus like a tech lead, team lead? What what, what is a squad? Maybe I'll start there. Yeah, we we try somehow to uh, replicate the model from Spotify. Uh, they have this model of squads and tri tribes. At this moment, it's an agility process in the company that I work at Orange, and we have different squads uh, in uh, our department that are uh, handling uh, a specific product. So we, a squad, it's actually a team of uh, cross-functional uh, uh, people that are co-located when we work at the office <laughs> and that are responsible to build a product from specs until the product goes to the end customer. And by cross-functional, I mean that we have the product owners that are coming from marketing. We have also uh, PR people in, uh, in our team. We have business analysts. We have uh, QR, uh, quality assurance, UX, UI designer, mobile developers, backend developers. It's, it's an entire team of people that are working on the same uh, objectives and their purpose is to deliver a product to the end customer. And to market it and promote it. So it's, 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 when you say cross-functional, it's definitely beyond just being a collection of designers, developers, project managers, QA people. It's, it, you're actually working closely with the marketing. Yeah, and this, this was very helpful from my perspective. It, it's my first time when I tried this approach. Uh, it was very helpful because we understood what's happening with our code after we commit it and release it. 
because we got feedback from customers directly from the product owners. They are doing tests with the customers and they are getting the their feedback from different channels. And we understand the big purpose of the project. And also they are able to understand uh, what we are doing. <laughs> exactly what you mentioned before, we just we don't just write code, we have meetings, we, we plan some stuff, we review the code and so on. So everybody knows better uh, what the other uh, team members are doing and we understand the, uh, the big purpose of the project. Do you find that that type of approach has been helpful in, in your role? Do you see that... Do you ever have people on your team, like developers, I'm thinking specifically, be concerned about how many meetings they need to be part of in that space? Yeah, indeed. Uh, sometimes it happens to, to have uh, many meetings. We try to reduce them uh, as much as possible. And uh, sometimes we get only one uh, representative from the backend and from the mobile in order to not involve the entire team in a meeting that we don't know exactly if we will have uh, some clear things to, to define at the end of it. Sometimes we just try to understand what should be done next or to understand some new flows. And it's just like a brainstorming or like a small talk about what should be done next, but without being so clear the purpose of it. So we try to reduce the time spent on the meetings and because we don't, we, I also know that it's not so, uh, such a great thing to spend too much time on meetings because you feel the need to, to achieve something during the day, not just to mention that you were in five meetings. Yes, yes. I hear you there. That's a. It's been a. It's been an interesting thing I've heard from different developers, like people that I employ myself. Even like I was having a one-on-one -on -one recently with someone, and they're like, "I'm just in too many meetings," and I'm, and then I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, if you weren't in some of those meetings, you'd be feeling like you were missed out on something too, and like, well, I didn't know that I wasn't in that meeting. And so there's sometimes that struggle for. Uh, how do how do you help your team? I'm asking for some free advice here. Understand that. It, not everybody needs to be part of every meeting. So the people that are not part of a meeting um, need to trust that the person that's going into the, like the representative. So you mentioned that there might be one person from the back end goes into there and come. But how do you, how do you help that transmission of important communication get distributed outside of the person that attended it? The other people can trust that they're going to be aware of what's important, but not necessarily feel like they need to be part of every conversation to understand why things are being decided the way they are. Yeah, usually we have meeting notes. I'm a big fan of Confluence <laughs> and I write to, I like a lot to write uh, documentation or to make sure that some details are added there. We have also decision logs where we uh, write all the things that we decided uh, in order to, when, I don't know, maybe someone will ask, why did you do that in that way? <laughs> We will go there and see what was the purpose uh, of uh, changing that functionality. So uh, this is one approach to have uh, meeting notes uh, sent to the entire team, not even not only to the people that participated at that meeting. And uh, usually they try to um, uh, rotate. I mean, to uh, not be the same person all the time in the meetings. So the knowledge will be shared uh, in, a, in a proper way. And it's, it's very uh, difficult when you have one person that is somehow the subject matter, matter expert. The sharing of the code and of the knowledge 
it's important and it should be uh, somehow uh, at the same level. We are not there yet with some uh, some parts of the app, but we are uh, trying to to improve this thing. Yeah, I'm always uh, cognizant of how there's so much information usually happening, like being shared and and moving around us in our day to day work and like how it, you know we can send out meeting notes to the rest of the team that wasn't say part of the meeting, but that doesn't always guarantee that they understand it or they've really took the time to comprehend it or even to ask questions of it. Have you found some good ways of helping know that your team has been a, has somehow wrapped their head around it or is it just more of a, this is how we do it and like the expectation is you should read it, read it. Is there any sort of expectation that they, they have to comprehend it each time? Um, our approach in this case, usually when we need to uh, make some decisions or to decide the uh, stories for the next uh, sprints, is to uh, f- uh, make the refinement meetings. And in that refinement meeting, everybody will participate and they will have the opportunity to address questions if something is not clear. And uh, usually in those meetings, we reiterate the, the things that we know until then and Maybe if something is not clear or we, we discover during a meeting that something should be uh, more detailed, the product owners and the business analysts will uh, have some more homeworks for, for the next meeting and in the next refinement or planning, they will uh, bring the, the results. You mentioned also when you're talking about when you're seeking out types of people to hire on your team and you, you went through that. I appreciate that you walking through the whole onboarding experience that you're, you know, you're striving for there. You mentioned profiles that you're seeking. Do you have some examples of what that, what that might look like off the top of your head? Mm-hmm. So for example, if I'm searching for a mobile developer uh, for my team, uh, first of all, I, I look inside of my team and see how my colleagues, what kind of skills my colleagues have what kind of skills are needed in order to collaborate with the the other team members. So I I think this profile usually split on three main uh, things, the skills, the experience, and also the team matching criteria. For example, uh, if I search for an Android developer, maybe I want a senior. Starting from there, I'm I'm trying to uh, build a profile that I would like to, to find to check some specific skills. And based on that, I will also address the questions during the, pro- the interview process. And also if uh, uh, they will pass that, uh, that uh, milestone, I will go further and see uh, what should be uh, asked or uh, what kind of tasks they should do in order to, to match my, uh, my profile. Are there certain types of um, like the skills and such, but also are you often looking for like where there's a gap in your team skill set, like, okay, we need to go find this in someone else versus trying to train your team to figure out how to get over there? Do you, do you, how do you weigh that up sometimes in your hiring process? Yeah, I believe in, in a mixed set of skills. I also believe in the idea of matching the people with the right place in the team. Uh, and for sure, you should have different kind of people inside of your team. Maybe one that is very curious and want to learn more stuff and uh, that person will be able to uh, bring new ideas or new libraries that we will be able to use and that will improve the quality of the code or the speed of development. 
Uh, and also you maybe need a person that is very good on the business and it's able to uh, write a, a very well structured uh, uh, layer of used for connection uh, with the API or with the, with the database. So it's a mixed uh, set of skills. And also, yeah, sometimes if, if I have some specific set of skills inside of my team, I try to bring something new. We'll be back with our interview with Magda in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media like LinkedIn or Twitter and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Magda Miu. my understanding that outside of you know being a squad lead and coder yourself you're also a trainer and mentor for other developers how did you find your pathway into doing that type of work yeah i think actually my parents wanted me to be a teacher <laughs> and i think it's uh, somehow um, <laughs> their wish came through <laughs> the idea with the mentoring started to um, from the fact that I was uh, a co-organizer at a local community for developers. It's called Google Developers Group. And uh, I was involved in uh, organizing free events for for the developers uh, from my hometown. And uh, sometimes I also uh, enjoy to uh, give technical presentations. And I also, when I started to write Android code, there were not so many resources and I started to build my own blog, just like a a library, like a set of resources for myself in order to search there when I forgot to do something in a proper way. So uh, these things, these two things combined, um, uh, help me to uh, understand how helpful it is to have someone that could share with you some knowledge and that will help you to uh, move on on your career and uh, be a better developer. And uh, as part of these communities, I also uh, started to talk at technical conferences uh, in uh, in Romania and also uh, outside of country in uh, France or uh, Germany or Prague uh, in uh, in uh, Czech Republic. And um, the achievement, let's call it like this, was that. I received the certification, which is called Google Developer Expert for Android. Based on that, I started this program to be a trainer for um, students at the technical universities. And this program is organized by Google Romania. And uh, I created the courses and the curricula for for those uh, classes. And uh, this uh, program is happening on four big cities from Romania, on four uh, big uh, uni- technical universities. And I'm also the trainer uh, in, uh, in Bucharest. Usually the groups are uh, about 30 people. And I help them to learn Android from, from scratch. Oh, wow. You mentioned you took some maybe some courses on becoming a technical trainer um, and your parents wanted you to be a teacher. And so, you know, you're making their 
their wish happy, you know, making them happy, I suppose there. Do you find that in your curriculum, you know, so you're teaching people how to start developing Android applications from scratch. Do you get to dig into some of the topics related to like long-term best practices related to long-term, like now imagine like three years, you're still working on the same project. What sort of things can you put in place today that you're not going to be mad at yourself for three years from now when you're still working on this project? Um, how, how have you been able to incorporate long-term maintainability to someone that's trying to understand how it works in the first place? Yeah, I will come back a little bit with the idea of uh, how I uh, became a trainer. I, my parents told me all the time that I will be a good teacher, a good trainer, because I'm able to explain uh, in an easy way some difficult things. And I discovered lately that I have these skills. I, were not, I was not aware about it. And right now I enjoy it a lot because I realize that sometimes uh, when I'm able to explain a, co- a complex concept to someone, I'm able to under- understand it better. And it's also a way for me to, to learn new stuff and to be prepared to, to answer to their questions, even if they are uh, my students, even if I'm going to a technical conference and I should prepare a specific topic and I should be able to answer uh, the questions from the audience. And now coming back from at, at your question, in my uh, courses, in my classes with my students, uh, I'm trying to emphasize uh, the importance of the clean code. And I try to uh, show them the difference between an unclean code and a clean code. And I start with basic and simple examples, like uh, how to call a variable or how to call a function. And I try to explain them if I call a, fun- uh, a variable x int x, equals zero. If I call it int count of students equals zero, the difference is huge because if you will come back in three or four months there, you will understand what that variable will do. So I try also with uh, this kind of clean uh, code principles uh, and uh, also I emphasize the importance of knowing uh, the object-oriented principles and they, they should know Java. I'm teaching the classes in Java. I hope uh, I will do it also in Kotlin, but they are learning Java at, u- at the university. So this was the, the reason why I choose Java. And also I try to tell them from my stories and from my mistakes and uh, learn them to understand why, for example, it's important to define the strings in a, in a file all the strings in a file because maybe at a moment uh, the customer or the product owner will want to make the the application multi-language and in that moment if you don't have all the strings in the same place you'll need to get all the strings from the entire project in order to achieve that task. So I, I truly believe in this idea of understanding the why because if I told them just put the strings in the same file and that's it, let's move on. I don't think it's so clear and they don't understand what is the purpose of doing like that. Why don't just put them in the Java code or in the XML layouts? You know, you, you touched on a couple of things there related to, you know, as you're helping people understand, showing them good examples of maybe bad or lazy coding styles, like a single letter variable name. is It's like a really good example. And I'm remembering for my own experiences that I, I did that when I was, you know, earlier in my career and um, would be made fun of by my coworkers. So it was, um, it's, it's helpful to see that kind of like th- those differences early on. 
do you are they able to kind of get their head wrapped around unit testing in, in such in your in your training mechanism or is that kind of something that you bring in later is like is tdd an approach that you feel like you can start off early on in someone's career or is that something you kind of need to bring out in a little later on yeah, in my actually, uh, this program made uh, by Google, Google Romania is split it uh, in two parts. It, there is a course for um, fundamentals, and it's another one for advanced. In the fundamentals, we don't touch this subject of testing. The this course uh, takes ten weeks, and uh, in the first nine weeks, I teach them different concepts, and in the final course, in the final class, they um, show their work because during the classes they work on a project that combine all the concepts learned during the, the classes. So the time is too short to, to cover also the testing in the, in the fundamentals. But in the advanced, in the advanced uh, course, uh, they cover the, the testing. Usually I try to, in order to somehow help them to move in that direction, is to think what could happen wrong. Okay, so I have here a getter. What will happen if the uh, that object will be null? And somehow I, I try also to write the code in a defensive way somehow, but uh, also to uh, help them to go in the unhappy path approach. So they kind of work through that. What about thinking a little bit more about like in the advanced topics and something that I've touched on with a few different people on the podcast is I didn't go through a normal or I didn't really go through a formal education process to become a software developer myself. And I'm not someone that really enjoys working on brand new projects. I like making changes to existing projects. And I've always been curious how they're able to effectively teach people how to build a new thing, but also to dive into an existing code base. Because my guess is that most people in the industry, their first job isn't starting with a blank canvas project, Greenfield project. You're diving into something that's been around for a couple of years, maybe more, and it's big and messy. And you're like, oh, wow, this is a completely different environment. I know how to build some scaffolding right now, but I don't know how to like change that. So how, how do you help people get through that process? Or do, do you, is that part of the education curriculum of changing something that they didn't build themselves? Not exactly. Well, I can tell you from my team lead experience, uh, this part, the idea is that also in teaching and mentoring uh, juniors or new people in your team, it's important to help them if they don't already know uh, what is their, their learning style. Because uh, by doing that, you are able to understand what kind of resources they will need in order to learn new skills or to help them to understand the, the legacy code. And in by learning styles, I'm talking that uh, about the fact that uh, some people uh, learn by doing, they are hands-on people, or uh, some people are visual and they like to see schemas and, uh, uh, I don't know, pictures with uh, some representations uh, and make everything visual. And there are some people that, will, that uh, like and they learn better when they hear the information. So I think this is the first step to understand your, uh, your way to learn new stuff. And after that, based on, on the profile and based on what you want to achieve, it's very helpful to help the team member or the student to create a learning plan. 
And I think this uh, learning plan, uh, when you have a mentor, could be uh, done very easily because you should know uh, what should be covered. I don't know, maybe, first of all, it's important to know what is a class, an interface, what its inheritance, what is composition, what is the difference between them, basic stuff. And after that, you go to the language and you need to understand how to work with the language and what are the main features of it in order to help him to uh, write code that is not doing over-engineering. So do some fancy stuff that could be done, I don't know, with just a simple uh, instruction. And this learning plan should be reviewed periodically in order to see what should be changed, what should be added, and so on. It's, it's like a feedback loop here. And also, depending on the experience, uh, I encourage them, for example, in my team, I encourage them to uh, give technical talks inside of the team or to the other squads. Um, for example, one of my team members is very good on the UI testing, automation testing. And I try to encourage him to, to do a presentation about this topic. Uh, or if uh, they could also mentor the juniors and they, in this way, you give him uh, some autonomy and you empower him or her to help another team member to, to learn new stuff. And sometimes you also are able to uh, clarify some things because learning by uh, learning others, uh, it's, uh, it's a way to, to build new skills or to improve your own skills. Definitely helps uh, build up some confidence for people too in, in, that, in that process by, by knowing that you can communicate and explain things to other people. I think there's some, definitely some good advice in there. I'm curious about yourself. How do you approach continuously leveling up on your own skills? Yeah, I must confess that I'm, I'm still uh, striving to keep up with the technical stuff. <laughs> But I'm also uh, focused in the latest years on the leadership skills. So um, sometimes it's difficult. A way to uh, make sure that I'm, um, I'm keeping up with the technical stuff is by reviewing the code and coaching my, my team members. Also by writing articles about some specific topics, maybe some new ones for me or maybe some, one, some topics that are already known but... I found a new way to explain those things. And also the technical talks that I uh, give at different conferences are very helpful for me in order to uh, learn new things about, uh, about, about, sorry, about a specific topic. You know, the, you mentioned um, the last few years you've been focusing more on leadership skills, you know, so how has that transition from being maybe a regular daily contributor to code, producing code and knowing that, look, I did something and I immediately see if it's working or not too, is I can relate to this in the in a leadership role where you're experimenting with doing a lot of different things and you don't get that immediate feedback of like, I hope the advice or the conversation I just had was helpful, <laughs> you know, how and, and knowing that you're kind of leaning on your team to do, to, to deliver their parts of the project and what has that process been like mentally for you to kind of transition to getting comfortable with not seeing code as your primary way of uh, seeing that you accomplish something? Yeah, indeed, it was uh, it was difficult because uh, I used to check some tasks at the end of the day, and it was very clear what I've done during that day. <laughs> and by being a team lead, sometimes 
when you try to see what happened during the day, you see that you had some meetings, maybe some one-on-ones, and maybe you wrote some documentation or if you're lucky enough, you made some code review in that day. Yeah, it was a little bit difficult and I had some moments when I was not so sure that I want to go to the leadership or uh, came back to the development. But I think this, uh, the, the things that are happening right now with, uh, in, in my career help me to uh, keep also closer the technical things. Uh, I learned a lot of new stuff because right now in my team I have also backend developers and a lot, I learned a lot of things from them and a lot of concepts and new frameworks and new libraries. And somehow uh, I, I feel that I learn new stuff and it's very helpful for me. And uh, on the other side, I, I do my best to uh, learn more about how to work with people and how to help them to grow and to... A discovery that was very surprising for me was the fact that you are not able to motivate the people. I, I, I read a book, a book uh, by Susan Fowler, and in that book says that uh, you are not able to motivate them, but you are able to create a context that will help them to succeed. And uh, in that book, it's um, a concept of um, ARC, uh, autonomy, relatedness, and competency. And you should focus on these three uh, skills to be uh, improved for your team members in order to create a context for them to succeed. It's a conscious work for me to understand their way to do their things, also to uh, help them to learn to receive feedback and to give feedback, all the time make sure that they are happy with the things that are happening in the project. And yeah, sometimes <laughs> I'm not able to make all the people happy <laughs> and I don't think also is my entire job. But I, I think I truly believe in the idea that I'm, I'm responsible to set up the people for success. And this success could be a different thing for each one of them. Yes, that's that's very true. You can't you can't apply the same approach on every person within your team as much as you wish you could. Um, you're like, oh, I'll get really good at this, but then you get that other person. You're like, this is not working for them. I got to try something different, and or I might need to go learn some new skills myself to figure out how to like navigate this. Yeah, and I want to come back a little bit with the uh, idea of motivating the people. Indeed, it's very helpful to have their feedback and to understand that we have a shared vision and a common purpose. And our purpose, in, in my case, in our case, is to build a product. And this, this common purpose should help the team to collaborate and to understand that they work on the same purpose and everybody has the same uh, vision in their mind. How do you go about assessing if that's actually true? Do, do you, like whether that, that, they, that they do share the same vision, when I know that we all interpret words a little differently. or Yeah, it was a little bit of work at the beginning. Uh, the product owners help us a lot with, uh, with this uh, shared vision uh, because they uh, showed, showed us somehow uh, what is the end purpose of our work and uh, also the opportunity to work on a product from scratch was very motivating for, for the team. And also the fact that they, they know they have the opportunity to choose some stuff or to improve the code 
by adding, I don't know, new libraries or by, um, we have somehow the ownership uh, in a limited set of uh, <laughs> uh, limits for sure. We have a, a, some also some limits, but uh, we also have the opportunity to choose. And I think it's uh, it's rewarding for the team. Now, as a, I have a few final questions for you, and I, w- I wanted to thank you for opening up and sharing some of your own experiences, in particular around mentorship and leadership and knowing you've got to go through those challenges. And I like having those conversations with people on the podcast in particular with, so that I know there's a lot of developers that think that there's like, oh, at some point I'll become a manager, but I don't know that they're always thinking about how different their job's going to be once they become like a lead of a team. And like, you're not just getting to make all the decisions of all the technical decisions. And like, it's not going to be like, oh, once I'm leading the team, we'll do things the right way. It's like, no, you you can't take over those decisions away from the other people on the team. You got to give them the chance to make those decisions and learn and experiment with things. And managing and leading a team is, and also really appreciate you also talking a little bit about how you can't motivate people. And I know that's always like a question where always like, how can I just encourage them or motivate them in just the right way? That's a, it's a, it's a complicated process that you have to kind of go through. So outside of, you know, you mentioned um, Susan Fowler's book there, but outside of say that, what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to PSA people in your team to read? I, I realize right now that lately I, I read only books in, uh, in the technical field. I, I can re- recommend one that is it's somehow technical, but not fully technical. Uh, it's written by Venkat. Uh, it's called Practices of an Agile, Agile Developer. It's, and it's about how to collaborate and how to work in an Agile world. And it's more about uh, behaviors and best practices. Nice. I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yes, uh, you could find me on Twitter, Magda Miu. And also I have a blog with the same name. And yeah, so especially on, on Twitter, um, you, you could find me. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Magda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was also very nice for me. Thank you. Thank you.